Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on symptom management. Hi, I'm Sharla Wells de Gregorio. This morning we're going to be talking about anxiety disorders and PTSD. Uh, Post-traumatic stress disorder used to fall under the category of um, anxiety disorder, but in the DSM-5 they moved it to a separate category of trauma and stress-related disorders, so I had to do that as a tag-on. Um, so today we're going to be talking about the diagnosis and non-pharmacologic management of anxiety disorders or how, uh, how we do psychotherapy for anxiety disorders. Um, we'll talk about anxiety and the components of anxiety. Um, then we'll um, review some but not all of the anxiety disorders and how you would go about screening for those disorders. And then we're going to uh, look at some of the psychotherapeutic treatments for each of the disorders that we're talking about. So anxiety is composed of uh, affect, which is just emotional expression. There are, uh, depending on who you talk to, six, six or seven basic emotional expressions that are recognized cross-culturally. And uh, uh, the one that you're seeing in the picture there is fear. So people recognize fear by this emotional expression cross-culturally with the eyes, uh, eyes wide open. Um, it's also an emotion, and the difference between fear and anxiety, uh, fear is what we would call uh, when, when there's a specific stimulus present. So you are being attacked by a lion, or you encounter a spider or see a snake. Uh, that is fear, whereas anxiety, there might not be a specific stimulus present, or that uh, stimulus is either in the past or future. So you're just looking forward to something uh, with worry or looking back on something and uh, usually regretting, um, which creates a sense of anxiety. Um, it's accompanied, usually accompanied by different thoughts that serve to maintain the anxiety. So thoughts like I'm not going to pass my boards would serve to maintain anxiety about the boards. So um, we'll talk about how we use that in treatment. <clears throat> and finally, uh, behavior. Um, some of the behaviors that go along with uh, fight or flight uh, behaviors that go along with uh, anxiety is fight or flight. Uh, how many have heard of fight or flight? Yeah, can anybody tell me what that what that means? What happens? How about the two of you? Any? <laughs> what is fight or flight? It's hard to put into words, but you either face the challenge, whether it's mm -hmm. I'm going to start studying really hard for my boards, or mm -hmm. I'm going to find a way to take out the saber-toothed tiger that's about to attack me, or mm -hmm. I'm not going to take my boards, I'm not going to study, and I'm going to go be a barista. Mm -hmm. or I'm gonna <laughs> run away from the saber-toothed tiger. Right, so exactly. Um, so it's either approach or avoidance behaviors are initiated by anxiety, so exactly that. Um, Shelley Taylor at uh, UCLA also identified a different pattern for women that sometimes under situations of stress, women will tend and befriend um, versus fight or flight. So um, that just means that they'll reach out and uh, usually engage in caregiving behaviors or they'll uh, befriend. So they'll call a friend and seek out social support. So there are a couple uh, gender differences. Not that women don't engage in fight or flight, but that was kind of developed on uh, mostly men uh, looking at the research on fight or flight. So there's also a biologic response. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the um, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis responses and then the sympathetic adrenal medullary responses. So in terms of uh, anxiety as a process, all of these things are interrelated. So you have 
thoughts and behaviors, physiologic arousal, and a set of emotions, and all of those combine to create the condition of anxiety. So when we're uh, treating anxiety, we're looking at all of those circles and trying to um, help people with each, each of those areas. So what about, is all anxiety bad? No, you're shaking your head no. Um, why is it not bad? Oftentimes you need some level of anxiety to force you to go forward with things. If you don't have the anxiety mm -hmm. about the test, you're not going to study. And so sometimes it can be a, a good motivating factor. Uh-huh. Yeah, so anxiety can increase uh, motivation um, for performance. And the Yerkes-Dodson law um, was developed in 1908 or observed in 1908. Called the, also called the inverted U hypothesis. So exactly what you're saying, there's an optimal level of anxiety for every task uh, that we engage in. So if you have uh, no anxiety, say, about the board, you might be kicking back on the couch like, <laughs> I'm not worried about this. I don't have to do anything about it. I don't have to study or prepare. So you, this low level of arousal just doesn't uh, motivate you to engage in the behaviors you need to to be successful at the task. So um, optimal level is like a moderate level of arousal. And then when you get uh, too, too much arousal or too much anxiety, then you see performance dec uh, decrements, like if you're um, having a lot of test anxiety um, or trying to perform a task under a condition of a lot of anxiety, you're just not going to remember as much. You're not going to be able to concentrate on the task um, because you have too high, a high of a level of arousal. When we know that uh, anxiety um, is out of control or more pathologic is uh, when it's uh, too high of intensity, so you're just not able to do the things you need to do. It's lasting too long, so something's happened and you're not uh, going through a recovery period. It's something that continues to, to um bother you or affect your behavior long term, or it has detrimental effects on behavior. So, um, so you need to go undergo uh, cancer treatments, but you have a needle phobia or you're scared of uh, MRIs because you're claustrophobic. Um, so in that case, the avoidance of anxiety is interfering with um, treatment and potentially survival. Um, or you might be overly attuned to physical symptoms and side effects. Um, several studies have shown that uh, when people have higher levels of anxiety, they, um, it's associated with higher levels of self-reported pain and higher levels of nausea and other symptoms. So. Um, other reasons why anxiety is relevant is that there's a comparable risk of suicide for those with panic disorder as there is of depression. We tend to think of uh, suicidal acts as just tied to depression, but when people are extremely anxious, um, that's a really strong risk factor for, um, for suicide. So um, really pay attention to that if you have patients with really significant uh, uncontrolled anxiety, um, especially akathisia, um, which we'll talk more about. Um, it doubles or triples the risk of alcohol abuse. So um, and that's, I, I do see that a lot in practice, that a lot of times uh, people who are reporting a history of um, alcohol abuse um, usually have a comorbid either anxiety disorder or a impulse disorder like attention deficit disorder because it helps them to kind of bring down their uh, anxiety level. Um, when we're talking about anxiety, it's important to do a, a differential diagnosis, just like we would with um, pain. So knowing what type of pain the person has really helps you to determine uh, the treatment approach that you have. So the same thing goes for anxiety. So if somebody says they have anxiety, it's really important to understand, okay, what, 
what type of anxiety are they experiencing. So most commonly we see adjustment disorder with anxiety. So something new's happened and they're just having a really uh, challenging time adjusting to that. Um, generalized anxiety disorder, um, really the cardinal feature of that is worry and we'll cover that in more detail today. Uh, specific phobia, social phobia, and then uh, panic disorder. With panic disorder, um, people can uh, start to attach the anxiety to so many different situations that they really become afraid to leave the house. Like it might start with the grocery store and then other places that are heavily populated. So they start to avoid going out in public because they're afraid that they'll have a panic attack and they can't escape. So when that's going on and they're afraid to leave the house or um, socialize, we call it panic disorder with agoraphobia. Um, you can also have just panic disorder without agoraphobia, so they're still going out, um, but they're oftentimes still afraid to have a panic attack in uh, public. And then you can have agoraphobia without having panic attacks. Um, there's also obsessive compulsive disorder, which uh, we won't uh, cover today. Acute stress disorder and then post-traumatic stress disorder are now categorized in that uh, stress and trauma disorders section of DSM-5. And then anxiety disorder uh, due to a general medical condition, um, that would be akathisia, what that would be categorized under. And then substance-induced anxiety disorder. So we're going to cover um, the ones in the first first category today, or the first box. Um, how many have uh, had a patient with akathisia? Okay, and what did that look like? What did what kind of uh, signs or symptoms were they experiencing? My patient had a lot of trunkal movements, um, and um, it would kind of ebb and flow, but he was constantly moving throughout the entire uh, mm -hmm. office visit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is that consistent with, with what you saw? Yeah, patients with akathisia will look like this guy. Oftentimes, they'll be jumping out of bed and pacing, uh, pacing around the room. Um, they might feel like just like they have to move all of their limbs. They can't sit still in bed. Um, but if you ask them um, if they're anxious about anything or if they're worried about anything, a lot of times they'll say, no, you know, things are going fine. I don't really feel anxious. So that's an important question um, to try to identify is it anxiety or akathisia. Um, akathisia is most often uh, caused from what I've seen by uh, a lot of the anti-emetic uh, medications and it's often when a person seems to be having trouble controlling their nausea so there might be a, uh, two or three different medications that are prescribed. Um, it's a pretty rare condition but um, if you're seeing that I've seen like Compazine and, and Reglan and Finergan um, as potential causes. Um, although it can be caused by antidepressants and um, antipsychotics, um, and usually by uh, removing the offending medication, their symptoms resolve. And boy, are they really happy <laughs> and pleased with the care you've provided if you've identified that and removed that as a source of distress. So, um, other things that you would want to rule out with anxiety disorder. So. Alcohol and uh, nicotine withdrawal, bipolar disorder. Um, I had a, a patient once referred for uh, anxiety and uh, or severe severe anxiety was a referral, and she just could not sit still. She had to keep jumping up and going to the restroom and coming back and. Um, turned out that she had a, a positive cocaine screen, so always <laughs> have that as a, a rule out in your mind if someone's doing the akathisia thing. She was also doing a lot of scratching and itching, and that could be a sign of uh, methamphetamine abuse or, or cocaine abuse. So um, some of the steroids really throw people's behaviors off, so they may not be sleeping. They might be having some racing thoughts or worries, so that's something to consider where they just placed on high-dose uh, steroids. 
Um, and then thyroid uh, dysfunction, that's one of the first things that I um, will investigate if someone's having new onset anxiety and they're unable to sleep and they're feeling um, kind of hyperactive and just like racing and jumpy and restless. That's one of the things that I'll want to rule out. But all of these things can uh, look like an anxiety disorder. Also, um, something to consider is some of the antidepressants when you start them. If someone has a predisposition towards anxiety, um, like Welbutrin, some of the more activating antidepressants. So eventually that usually subsides with time, but for some people they can't tolerate some of the more activating antidepressants. Now we're gonna focus on differential diagnosis. I like this cartoon because we all probably have worriers in our lives or have worried uh, in our lives, um, but that's really different than uh, having an anxiety disorder. So with uh, generalized anxiety, um, you have to have at least six months of uh, excessive anxiety and worry. And you're not just worried about one thing. So if you get a, um, of course, if you get a chronic, uh, a diagnosis of a chronic or serious like illness, you're gonna have some anxiety about that. But the person with generalized anxiety is worried about that. They're worried about finances. They're worried about like, the house being in disrepair, they're worried about the kids going out at night, they're worried about uh, five or six other, uh, other things. So their, their life is just really consumed by worry. Um, they have difficulties controlling worry, so they can't just stop it and start problem solving. Um, and um, they often feel uh, either restless, um, Fatigued, that's hard when you're um, working with cancer patients because they'll be experiencing fatigue often related to disease or treatment. So I'll usually ask, do you feel fatigued because, like, does worry ever wear you out because you spend so much time worrying? Do you feel tired as a result of that? Um, it can cause concentration problems, and again, so can uh, a lot of the cancer treatment. So I'll ask, um, if they are so worried that it interferes with their concentration or things that they're trying to accomplish. Um, are they more irritable than usual or more easily annoyed? Do they have um, significant tension in their muscles like their back, their neck, their shoulders that they notice? And are they having difficulties falling asleep? And I'll usually try to assess, is it because you're staying up worrying or thoughts are kind of going through your head, you can't figure things out that you're having trouble falling asleep? Um, you also will probably or have probably seen fears of recurrence. That's a um, kind of a specific or focused worry. Um, it's co a common response post-treatment. So for those uh, people who do have a finite kind of end to their treatment, they have this period of feeling like, oh, now I'm not doing anything about my disease to control it. So um, they can fall into a period of feeling more anxious and um, most patients, I've, I, it's the rare patient that doesn't experience some scanxiety. So either, um, most people it's like a week before their next set of scans when they're going in uh, for a visit, start to feel more anxious. Um, I usually talk with them about having a plan that week to stay active or busy, engaging in pleasurable activities, especially the night before their appointment, just to kind of distract them from some of that. But then some people start that worry process like a month before or it never subsides, and that's more problematic. That's usually tied to generalized anxiety. Um, so it would be termed more appropriately worry of recurrence because it's not a, a fear. It's not actually happening in the moment. Um, and it, it's not, um, not necessarily generalized anxiety if it's just focused on that specific like fear or concern. This is the um, 
picture of the sympathetic response, so I don't know if you remember from uh, any of your coursework, but it's the body's way of getting us like worked up and able to deal with a stressful situation. So all of these things are happening uh, when we're worried, whether there's a lion in, lion in front of us or chasing us, or we're just worried about a test or finances or worried about home repairs. Um, so our heart rate is uh, increased, respiratory rate is increased, and really all of the um, blood and oxygen is being pumped, uh, glucogen stores being pumped to our uh, extremities so that we can fight or flee or do what we need to do to manage the stressor. Uh, so our adrenal glands are releasing norepinephrine and epinephrine. And then our digestion um, also slows down. And um, to counteract that, we have the parasympathetic response. So, um, and we call this the, uh, whereas the sympathetic response is fight or flight, the parasympathetic response is rest and digest. So your body is uh, uh, chilling out, calming down, uh, decreased heart rate, blood pressure, uh, decreased respiratory rate, decreased oxygen uh, consumption. So your body works in this kind of balanced um, uh, balance so that when you experience a stressor, you're worried about something, your sympathetic response goes up and then your uh, parasympathetic response kicks in. That's a little bit different um, for patients with generalized anxiety disorder because they spend so much time in an activated state and a sympathetic like arousal state um, that they have uh, elevated tonic sympathetic arousal or readiness, so they're always ready to kind of fight or flee, or um, so they always feel like a little bit um, kind of nervous or jittery. Oftentimes they'll say, um, someone with generalized anxiety will often say they feel overwhelmed by things. That's something um, to pay attention to. If someone's saying they're overwhelmed, it could be uh, GAD. But there's also autonomic inflexibility. So they've just kind of worn their uh, sympathetic response to the degree that they're, when they are facing a stressor, they're not mounting the same kind of sympathetic response that the rest of us might. So it's kind of like a um, smaller stress, um, stress response or sympathetic response. And then it takes them much longer to return to baseline. So it takes them much longer to get into that parasympathetic mode. So they're really just wearing out their stress response system. Um, for treatments and for uh, generalized anxiety disorder, um, there's several studies supporting uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. That's um, probably the prominent psychotherapy that you'd use for GAD. Um, and most of the trials have six to 12 month follow-up and show pretty uh, strong effects for lasting over 12 months with um, really good effect sizes. This is what uh, treatment for GAD uh, would look like. So uh, from a CBT perspective, so you're helping the person to identify their triggers or the things that kind of set them off with their anxiety. And then um, I like to think of it as the think, the feel, the do. So I'll usually start with the feel. So I want to get them in a position where they're not having this constant sympathetic arousal. So I'll teach them some relaxation techniques that can kind of calm down, uh, engage the parasympathetic response. And so they have something that's kind of under their control uh, when they're feeling stressed or anxious. That would include like, diaphragmatic breathing or progressive muscle relaxation, sometimes uh, guided imagery. Um, then we're working on the think, so we'll be looking at their worries and teaching them um, some problem-solving strategies with those, so shifting from uh, just worrying about things to asking themselves, is there anything I can do about this problem or worry, and if so, what's the next step? And if there isn't anything I can do, how can I disengage from this worry thought? Um, and then in terms of the do, um, a lot of times people are either 
engaging inappropriately with a stressor, so sometimes communication strategies and assertiveness strategies can help, but also like overcoming the avoidance. So we'll use a lot of exposure techniques. So okay, you've not been studying now for like two months, you've got one month left, so let's set up a schedule and engage with this and see what comes up for you as you're studying. Let's see how we can manage the anxiety. I just covered some of these strategies, but constructive worry is a really effective and simple technique. So most people do their worrying at night before they're trying to go to sleep just because they're active during the day. So as things calm down during the night, um, they start to engage in worry. And so we'll talk about the night is really not the best time to do your uh, best problem solving. Uh, you're not in a state of mind usually to solve, solve the problems you're trying to solve. So let's back that up during the day, like take half an hour in the afternoon. You pick the time, just write down anything that you might be worried about and then try to come up with some solutions for the, the, the things that you're worried about. Um, also, people who tend to worry a lot have po really positive beliefs about worry. Like they'll think, oh, well, if I don't worry about my son getting his driver's license, then he's going to be in an accident. And then so it's just challenging and testing that out. Okay, let's not worry about this and see what happens. Um, it's only on the occasional or very rare instance <laughs> where something something happens that they didn't worry about, but most of the time what they're worrying about doesn't happen. And so, um, and then, um, let's see, behavioral strategies, mindfulness meditation is um, a terrific strategy for anxiety because it's really teaching people through um, different types of meditation to be in the present moment. And when you're in the present moment, you're not worried about the future, thinking about the past. So, um, and the more they practice that, the easier it is to bring bring their mind back to the present. Um, and accompanying that um, lack of worry, they're more able to enjoy what's happening in the present, which um, tends to get lost for people with significant anxiety. Um, we'll also do some uh, pleasurable activity scheduling, um, try to replace some of that time that they might have spent worrying, um, and then use a variety of um, exposure strategies. This is a busy slide, but um, panic disorder is kind of a busy, <laughs> a busy disorder. What are some of the symptoms that you've seen uh, for people who've had panic attacks? What are some of the most common symptoms that occur? Yeah, chest pain. Yeah, chest pain will take them usually into the emergency department, fear of having a heart attack. Yeah, what else have you seen? Yeah, racing heart. Yeah, anything else that you see kind of commonly? Yeah, bless you. One of the um, cardinal features of panic disorder is just like a difficulty breathing. So people will say it feels like, and if you ask them, do you feel like you just have an elephant on your chest and so it's really hard to breathe and they'll say yeah. So um, that's really common or like kind of a chest tightness or squeezing or pressure. Um, so those would be the most common symptoms, trembling or shaking sometimes. It's pretty rare to have someone with numbness or tingling sensations, and oftentimes, the, at least the cancer population has a difficult time distinguishing, is that just neuropathy or is it in, a, in addition? Um, but panic disorder, um, that would be a panic attack, but panic disorder is usually only diagnosed with recurrent unexpected panic attacks. So. Um, they have to continue to have panic attacks after that first one. And then the panic attacks become what we call uncued. So there's not anything that they can identify that's really setting off the, uh, the panic attack. Most people will just have one panic attack, like something traumatic happens or um, they're very worried about something before an appointment and then it never happens again. So that's not panic disorder and probably doesn't need um, long-term treatment. This is the model for treating uh, panic disorder. So what we see um, starting in the middle there is um, there is a trigger 
they're um, like uh, they're not able to identify what the trigger is, but say it might be going into a public place. It starts to create this apprehension, like, oh my God, it's going to happen again. That apprehension then contributes to the physiologic sensation, so then they start to pay more attention to their symptoms. They can actually then, um, their heart might start racing and they become very attuned to that or they might start sweating and they feel like people, oh my God, people are going to see me like drenched, <laughs> drenched in sweat or um, just uh, are very fearful that the symptoms are not going to stop. Whereas they actually do subside in about 10 minutes. Um, for most people, a panic attack uh, doesn't tend to last longer, but there's this whole catastrophizing of physical symptoms, and then they start to associate that with more and more external cues, so that's how the, the avoidance gets created. So they're like, oh, I can't uh, go to this store, or oh, I can't go to this park, or oh, I can't go to my son's school because I might have a, a panic attack. So in terms of um, treatment, so reassurance is not effective. So family members will often say, oh, just get over it. It's okay. You'll be fine. Go to the store. Um, so you have to do a lot more. Uh, benzodiazepines, um, from a psychologist's perspective, not from other medical providers' um, perspective, are contraindicated. And why I say that is because people will then... Um, in trying to approach a situation, take a benzodiazepine to relax themselves, but then they never learn that those symptoms are not harmful in the first place, and that's the whole crux of the treat treatment for a panic disorder. Um, so if you have a, a patient that um, is experiencing panic disorder, try to get them into some therapy before prescribing because then they just um, get used to taking a benzodiazepine before they do a lot of things like to leave the house and um, just becomes a dependent. So um, panic control therapy, these are the steps. So we'll have them monitor their panic attacks so we can get a better sense of what some of the triggers might actually be. Um, a lot of times it's a physical symptom that they start to experience and are very attuned to. Um, we'll educate them regarding this uh, panic cycle. Teach them not to over-breathe, um, like when you're doing diaphragmatic breathing or um, when you're teaching um, progressive muscle relaxation. There's one part of it where you have them take a deep breath in. Everybody do that. Go ahead and take a deep breath in and hold it. Now, if you, if you feel that, you'll notice some tension or tightness in your chest wall muscles. That's what it feels like when a person's having a, a panic attack. Just everything is really tight, and so you have to help them to learn um, that sensation and how to counteract and how to relax their chest wall muscles um, and re-engage in deep breathing. Um, sometimes I'll ask people, well, um, they'll say, oh, I already do deep breathing. I know how to do that. And I'll say, okay, show me. <laughs> like that. I'm like, no, that's not it. So it really is a skill. And most people benefit just from taking like five or ten minutes to do deep, um, some deep breathing. Um, we'll also challenge their thoughts and risk estimates. So how likely is it that they're going to pass out and die in the grocery store, they may say 100%, so we'll have them doing some experiments and challenging their risk estimates. And then we'll do graded exposure, so we'll actually create the symptoms that they're experiencing, like to create shortness of breath, they might breathe through a, a small straw, breathe really quickly so they get that sensation and sometimes lightheadedness. And then uh, learn to deal with that or learn that they're not going to um, kind of pass out or die if they have that sensation. So um, it gives them a sense of control over those symptoms. You can spin them around in a chair to create dizziness also. So, um, Or have them jog in place um, if they're able to to create rapid, rapid heartbeat. With post-traumatic um, stress disorder, um, the person in, has an um, encounter with death, either um, themselves or through a family member. They witness a, a serious event or trauma. 
Um, and as a result, they have um, four different sets of symptoms. So they have intrusive symptoms, uh, avoidance symptoms, cognitive and mood symptoms, and then arousal and um, uh, reactivity. So that's how we would diagnose. We'll go through each of those. And then it has to last longer than a month. So most people who experience a trauma like gradually adapt to that over the course of a month. They stop experiencing a lot of these symptoms. Um, so it has to last um, at least a month after the trauma. Um, so some of the intrusive uh, symptoms they might be having recurrent thoughts or images that just pop in their head when they're trying to do something else. Um, they might have distressing dreams or nightmares or flashbacks where they feel like they're um, right back in the moment. They feel like it's happening again. They have the same level of physical arousal. Um, they have intense distress with cues related to the event. So if a person experienced a trauma in the hospital, they might avoid going to the hospital because every time they go, they just get really um, hyper, hyper aroused and fearful of being there. Um, and then also avoidance. Um, I've had several people, um, uh, veterans coming out of um, Vietnam or other wars and um, Back when Vietnam was going on, we didn't have a lot of the current uh, PTSD treatments that we have today. And so a lot of times they would be told by um, counselors and other people that they just had to put things in the closet. They just had to pack it away and not think about it again. So what you see is like something happens in the future and kind of re-triggers all of that and they're right back at that place where they were. Um, so current treatments really focus a lot on uh, non-avoidance of, of the trauma. And then uh, there's also mood and cognitive changes. Um, a lot of times people will blame themselves for what happened. Like, if I could have done this, the person wouldn't have died. If I only had gotten there sooner, this wouldn't have happened. Um, so part of the treatment is uh, uh, working with them around the self-blame. Um, there could be feelings of detachment or estrangement. They just have trouble engaging in relationships. Um, or with hyperarousal, they may have irritable or angry outbursts, which I think you see a lot in movies portraying uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Reckless or self-destructive behavior. A lot of times after veterans have come back from war, they may spend a year or two just kind of um, drifting or uh, drinking or using, using other drugs as self-medication. Self uh, Hypervigilance, exaggerated startle responses, um, and then again, uh, some sleep difficulties. Oftentimes, the sleep difficulties with PTSD are related to nightmares, um, so they're just not getting very restful sleep or it could be trouble falling asleep because they're afraid somebody's gonna break into their house or a sniper is watching, watching out for them. Um, so psychotherapy um, recommended by the National Center for PTSD includes prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy. Um, EMDR is also a, a recommended therapy. I haven't practiced EMDR, so I uh, couldn't tell you much about, about that. This is what CPT looks like. Um, it's similar to prolonged exposure in that prolonged exposure has the person kind of repeat the trauma over and over until they habituate and um, express the emotions related to the trauma. But CPT um, adds on a cognitive piece where you're really having them work through some of their thoughts like um, that have changed related to with session 8, 9, uh, 10, and 11, and 12 really five different areas of beliefs tend to change related to experiencing trauma. So the person typically doesn't feel safe uh, safe in the world. So working on some of those um, beliefs related to safety, they may lack trust, that they really can't trust, trust other people, especially related to rape or uh, other uh, trauma such as sexual abuse, power and control issues, so feeling like they always have to be in control because if they're not in control, bad things can happen. Uh, Self-esteem, so I'm a bad person because I let this happen, so challenging some of those beliefs. 
and uh, intimacy issues like getting close to someone and, and what that means. So we're working on all of those things and teaching them how to challenge, um, challenge their thoughts and um, not just get uh, stuck or have stuck points in their thinking. Um, we do have them write about the trauma early on, but the first writing they do is usually focused on um, how did this trauma impact each of these areas of belief, you know, like your safety and trust in your relationships, um, so that you can uh, work more specifically on those. The last one we'll talk about is specific phobia. So. Um, that's an excessive or unreasonable uh, fear. Um, and with exposure, the person becomes immediately anxious. So if a person is claustrophobic, like being, being in an MRI or a small enclosed space, space um, they'll avoid the situation or endure it with intense anxiety or distress. Um, and it usually has to cause some interference with their work, school function, or social activities to be classified as a phobia. So say you have a spider phobia, but you don't have to do anything, or you're afraid of spiders, but your work doesn't involve spiders. You don't have to do anything with spiders. A spider might be in your house and that creates some fear. That probably wouldn't be a phobia because it's not interfering with anything you wanna do, unless you start to avoid the bathroom or wherever you saw the spider and then that could be problematic. Um, there's some good YouTube videos, so if you wanted to explore further, like the treatment of specific phobia, the treatment is 90 to 95% effective for most phobias, psychotherapy is, um, and it usually involves systematic desensitization. People create a hierarchy, say, um, I saw a patient that was had a fear of, uh, she had claustrophobia. She was especially afraid to be in elevators. Um, she had never actually been in an elevator where something went wrong, but she had seen some TV programs. And she was uh, getting treatment for lung cancer. And I think at the time it was like on the 10th floor of the hospital, so she would take the steps. And that was extremely hard for her because of her like um, shortness of breath. So she would just um, arrive like an hour before her appointment, slowly take the steps to get there. So we worked with her on a hierarchy. So first we started with her sitting in a medium-sized room and imagining herself in an elevator. And then she had a really small bathroom, so I had her sit in the bathroom and get used to that kind of small space. Then I accompanied her in the elevator and she told me what was going through her head in terms of her thoughts. And so we started to work to develop challenges. And then I had her do the elevator using some of these different thoughts like, I'm safe, I can always call for help, I will um, be able to get through this. And then doing it enough times that she really didn't need those like kind of safety, safety thoughts anymore. Um, and so eventually she was able to um, ride the elevator to get to her treatment. Um, the problem with treating specific phobia is that people are scared of the treatment. They get to a certain level and you really have to work with them to kind of push them to the next level. And a lot of times people drop out in the middle of treatment so they um, don't realize the benefit. Anxiety at the end of life, um, there are limited um, both psychotherapeutic and pharmacologic trials, actual um, studies looking at treating anxiety at the end of life. Um, what I've used with some benefit is worry exposure and problem solving therapy. A lot of times people will say that they're afraid of dying, so um, just exploring with them what, um, what's at the core of their fear of dying. Um, sometimes it's shortness of breath, sometimes it's pain, sometimes it's I'm leaving my family and I'm worried that my son is gonna return to using alcohol or my da daughter is developmentally delayed and I don't know who's gonna take care of her. So just working through in a problem solving way, those things that we can um, to expose them to their fears of dying. And then a, a newer therapy is acceptance and commitment therapy. And that is um, focused on 
when you have a, a problem that you can't necessarily change, accepting that and living with it, um, committing yourself to engage in valued activities despite that either symptom or problem. So I may have really significant anxiety, but I'm going to sit with that anxiety in order to uh, play with my children or go to the park um, because that's a valued activity. And I found that um, some of the ACT strategies are really effective at end of life. And there's also a couple other therapies that are useful at the end of life. They don't necessarily impact anxiety per se or decrease anxiety, but they um, can enhance, enhance a sense of meaning or purpose with meaning-centered psychotherapy. And with dignity therapy, enhance a person's sense of dignity. Dignity therapy, you're just recording a person's kind of um, lots of different questions, kind of like a life review, and then um, transcribing that. So they have a, a transcript to give to family members when they die. And um, family members have found um, that especially helpful in dealing with their grief. Not much to say here other than combination therapy has typically found to be more effective. So using medications and uh, psychotherapy together works. Um, there's less of a chance with relapse with a lot of psychotherapeutic treatment, so um, maintaining uh, change over time is better with psychotherapy. Um, but most trials um, have compared benzos with CBT, and I think Amber will talk about some of the <laughs> challenges of doing that. So let's look at a, a couple quick uh, case studies. So. Um, this, uh, you have a 58-year-old female with colorectal cancer, chronic back pain, uh, depression, GAD. She now presents with episodes of chest pain, tightening of muscles around her chest wall, difficulty breathing, and increased anxiety. These seem to be set off randomly with no prior expectation. What's your differential diagnosis? Yeah, so you'd want to explore if she has panic disorder. Um, number two, so you have a 42-year-old female with breast cancer. She reports nightmares, night sweats, and flashbacks to an episode that occurred post-surgery. And this was a real, uh, real scenario. She had lost a lot of blood, and the surgeon thought she wasn't awake. Um, they couldn't arouse her. She heard her surgeon say that she may not make it. She's lost a lot of blood. Patient recalls being cut into before losing consciousness. Um, what, what is it that she might have? Mm -hmm. Yeah, she had some uh, PTSD symptoms. And then the last one, 45-year-old African-American female undergoing treatment for multiple myeloma, referred to you for anxiety, panic, and nausea. She's uh, pacing in her room and exclaims, I can't live like this. When you ask her, she states she can't sit still, but is not really worried about anything. Her disease is in remission, and she's otherwise coping well. What would you be thinking about in this case? Mm-hmm. Yeah, akathisia or cocaine. <laughs> so one of those two. Uh, so your role is to uh, screen for anxiety. Um, try to differentially diagnose when you can. It seems may seem time-consuming in the short run, but it will save you a lot of time in the long run just because you won't have as many phone calls and um, patients may be more adherent to uh, what you're recommending if you're also addressing the anxiety. And then referring a patient to pro a provider who can do CBT or CPT. The Ohio Psychological Association has a really wonderful um, referral website, so um, at least in Ohio you can use that to identify therapists who have specific expertise in treating uh, different anxiety conditions. So that's a way to find a therapist that might have training in CBT or CPT. So today we uh, reviewed some of the essential components of anxiety. Um, can you tell me what those were? What are the pieces that go into anxiety? anxiety? Thinking. Uh-huh. Thinking. Yeah. Thinking, feeling. Yeah. And feeling would be the physiologic arousal. Hate doing. 
uh -huh. behaviors, yeah, and the other is like that affect or emotional expression. So um, we talked about screening for and differentially diagnosing anxiety disorders and reviewed some psychotherapeutic uh, treatments for each disorder. Um, so that's it. Any um, thoughts or questions, comments? When you talk about the different therapies for patients that are having anxiety at the end of life, what, um, like, how many visits does the patient usually require and at what frequency mm -hmm. do you usually see those patients? Hmm, that's hard. It depends on how close to the end of life they are. If, um, if say, the thought is they may survive a month, I would try to see them weekly to work through and do some end of life. Uh, preparation. A lot of times it's a longer, at least in the outpatient setting, like they might have six months or a year. So just related to clinic volumes, maybe every two, two weeks. Um, it's really challenging because at that phase, as you know, they're in and out of the hospital. So doing the work can take more time, you know, more time over uh, that period. Um, it also depends on what type of therapy we're doing, like dignity therapy. You might need six or eight sessions for that. If, if the person experienced a trauma and wants to deal with that, that therapy is like 12 to 20 sessions, depending on the number of traumas they've experienced. If it's depression, that's anywhere from uh, 12 to 20 sessions per like protocol. So it really depends what they're presenting with. Yeah. Yeah, great question. Anyone else? Thoughts? Uh, for the patient, for the patient with recurrence anxiety, you said usually you just give them like coping methods to distract and do stuff maybe like a day or two before, like when they, mm -hmm. when would you decide to start like medication or when would you think they'll need something else? Because I mean, every, let's say they've been followed up every three mm -hmm. months as, Four times a year, they'll probably be going through this or more, mm -hmm. depending on what medication. If you had to start, is it just something to temporize them the couple of days before, like a benzo? Mm -hmm. or I will leave that question up to Amber. She may address that when she talks in terms of medication. But I would say every... Um, so say I have 10 patients, uh, just by doing the um, psychotherapeutic strategies, most of them do pretty well with approaching appointments. There's usually one out of 10 who really continues to struggle regardless of the strategies. They're most often not implementing the things that we're discussing in therapy, so medication might be helpful for them, and that might be a preference uh, for them too, so yeah. Any other questions or thoughts or no? Okay, great. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content. Make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum.